If you would, open your Bible to Lamentations chapter 1. Wonderful to see all of you this morning and to hear your voices. That was fantastic. Um, Nothing more encouraging than hearing the voices of the people of God in unison, praising Him for the truth that He saves. Well, we come again today to Lamentations and to the people of God and to their fair city, Jerusalem, and we find it in utter ruin. And out of a cry of lament, Jeremiah here asks, how, in verse 1, how can this be? What has happened that has brought the people of God so low? And the answer we can find in a New Testament sense as a consequence of what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Commend and teach these things, Paul says. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What Paul is saying to Timothy and to you and I today is that the health of the people of God in any epoch, any time period, any situation is directly linked to the purity of their doctrine and they're living their lives in accordance with and not contrary to said doctrine. Friends, we live in a day and age where so many people will espouse that doctrine doesn't matter. But can I tell you this? That is just an underhanded way of making this bold statement. The church itself does not matter. Because the church of God has always been formed by the doctrines not of men, but that clearly flow from the pages of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. There would be no church today without the words of God. The true church is formed by the words of God. And what's interesting is the same crowd, whether they're conservative or liberal, that will say... Well, doctrine really shouldn't be the focus. Really what they want to get to is somewhere in the scope there are doctrines they want to deny, but they're too lazy to go through the intellectual work of rejecting those doctrines. So many liberal theologians throughout the past hundred years in our country have said this very thing, doctrine doesn't matter. But you know what they're really doing is they're just teeing you up 
so that they can, in a practical way, reject the doctrine of the virgin birth. Or reject the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Or reject the doctrine of the bodily resurrection and the bodily second coming of Christ. In so many conservative circles today, there are those who will hold on to the doctrines I've just mentioned, but at the same time, they will come to the doctrines that teach that God has eternally decreed those whom He will save, and they'll deny those doctrines. And the conservative church is weak today because those doctrines have been rejected. Hard stop. You see, slowly in this country over the last hundred years, snakes have found their way into the church to teach against the plain doctrines that the Bible espouses. Men play games while God is declaring His glory. And what is always at the forefront of those conversations is someone who will say, well, we merely have a theological disagreement. But what is really going on when analyzed under the weight of God's majesty is rebellion against the glory of God. And you might protest and say, but Jay, I'm just not a theological creature. And friends, I think that there are varying levels of of theological mindsets in the church, and that's okay. I'm so thankful for people like Augustine and Calvin and Beza and Luther and Schaefer and I could stick B.B. Warfield. I'm, I'm so thankful that they were intellectually gifted to the point that presidents and leaders were calling them on the phone and saying, hey, I know you're a Bible scholar, but I have this political problem and you're smart enough to help me solve it. Now, I'm thankful for that. But friends, if you say something, and and many people will, I'm not a theologian, I just believe that Christ died for me. Oh friend, you have just expounded in that one statement glorious doctrines of grace. J. Grisham Machen, one of the brilliant minds that pushed against theological liberalism in the 1920s through, I think, about the 40s, would point out in that one statement, I just believe that Christ died for me, that there are two realities. Christ died is a historical fact. And the church has always been a church that is rooted in a history. That's why church history matters so much in our generation. Christ died is a historical assertion. And the Christ died for me is a doctrinal assertion. You see, friend, when we take doctrine lightly, it will come out in our living. If you were to study the height of liberal theology, it would not then surprise you in the slightest where America is today morally, spiritually, and politically. It is all an outworking of what we have believed in this country. It is all the consequence of ideas. And here is why I bring all of this up. Because somebody, as you read through Lamentations, the visceral response you get to these words and how awful the judgment of God is upon the nation. And you ask with Jeremiah, how can this be? Well, it can be because Zedekiah had not believed the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. 
And so now Jeremiah is mourning over the catastrophic consequence of the nation's unbelief. The city is in waste. It is deserted, rejected, emptied of all joy. And I wish I could tell you this morning that as we head into verses 12 through 22 that it's going to get better today. But the consequence of unbelief never gets better. With that in mind, would you rise to your feet and do honor to the reading of God's Word. This written not only of Jeremiah, but under the weight of majesty of the Holy Spirit of Almighty God that gives us life and breath today. He writes, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. From on high He set fire. Into my bones He made it descend. He spread it a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By His hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those which I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in the midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbor should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you people and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves in the house it is like death they heard my groaning yet there is no one to comfort me all my enemies have heard of my trouble they are glad that you have done it you have brought the day you announced now let them be as I am let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all of my transgressions, for my groans are many, and my heart is faint. Would you pray with me, beloved? Father God, we come to you acknowledging our own foolishness and rebellion. We come to you this morning asking that in each heart and in each mind that you intend to redeem, that You would display wonderful things from Your Word, that we might empty ourselves and cling only to the precious promise that You and You alone save, and for Your own glory. In Christ's name, Amen.
You may be seated. Well, if the question how was not enough, if that was not powerful and compelling in and of its own right, if this visceral cry, how can this be, is not the height, well, now we come to a prophet who is not, and really he has personified the words of the city here, and she's cried out to God, God, how can this be? And that's arresting, I think, enough to stand by and watch someone as they're praying to God in their distress. But then what happens as the city is crying out to God, how can this be? She now sets her eyes squarely at you and I. She looks straight in our face and she asks this question, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look at what God has done to me. Does it matter to you? And that is the question that we come to answer this morning. Does this passage and the suffering of the people of God matter to us in the year 2023? When she, in all of her anguish, turns and says, is it nothing to you? All you who pass by, look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. We have a question to respond to. We take note of the suffering of God's people. And we have to ask this question, well, what has the Lord done here And the answer is, He has poured out His wrath, His indignation against sin. And it is altogether staggering. When the wrath of God genuinely comes upon a people, it is not something that, that can be mocked, that can be ignored, because it is bloody, and it is clear, and it is weighty. We are told in the final day that there is a judgment coming. We are told that there will be a day that there will be many people who have named the name of Christ. They have said and professed that they're a Christian. But they would rather have mountains pulled on top of them than to experience the judgment that they will experience. Because the wrath of God is so fierce. And the question comes, have you ever seen sorrow like this? The Lord has done this. It's clear. It's decisive. There is no theodicy pushing this, uh, some theological answer pushing this in the direction of, well, this is just circumstance. No, the Lord has brought this calamity. And God owns it through His prophet in His Word. Matthew Henry points out that Jeremiah here is looking past the afflictions that are being experienced in and of themselves. And he is owning that all be directed, that all of these, these circumstances and afflictions be directed, determined, and are disposed by Almighty God. God has executed judgment and it is horrid.
Think about the words and how they are applied here to the Lord. Think about this, and so many people have, have taken these words, and I don't believe that these are first and primarily about Christ, but hear these words as it is to the affliction of Christ. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. What has the world done in light of the sufferings of Christ? When the world sees in the historical record that Jesus was nailed to a cross, that He was, that he was whipped and that He was crowned with thorns and that He was mocked and that He carried His cross and all of those, those sufferings and that His side was pierced and that He was put in a grave. What does the world do in considering that judgment of God? Because that is the greatest thing that's happening on the cross. Is the wrath of God is being poured out on the Son of God. But notice, the same thing that happens to Jerusalem happens to the Son of God. The world pass by, passes by and does not care. Surely nothing so condemns the world as their response to the suffering of the Savior. Nothing is so weighty as being able to live a life in the face of the historical certainty of the death of Christ and you passing on by. The fact is, the lamentator here is asking a question. Again, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Do you see the de destruction of the city? Do you see the destruction of Christ? Do you think that on the day of judgment, in light of the fact that He has poured out His wrath upon His chosen city, Jerusalem, and He's poured out His wrath on His only begotten Son, that you, apart from Christ, would be able to withstand His wrath. Not a chance. And here we find the, the poetic expression of the consequences of sin. There is immense suffering. Look at verse 13. From on high He set fire. Into my bones He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He set me, excuse me, he has left me stunned faint all the day long. There really are four, I think, images here. The first one being that of, uh, of, of fire, fire from on high, this indignation, a burning consequence spiritually that this uh, city feels the anger of God. And we hear the echoes of the psalmist in Psalm 6, verse 2 Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. God meant business here, and the people knew it. They felt it as though it were a raging fire. The, the second analogy here is that of a net, or a, it's really the, the, the word more that I think we would associate with a trap of. of a hunter, that, that sin for us is a trap. And once we are ensnared in that trap, and friends, the reality is the trap was set and we fell into it way before our birth. Because we are not merely sinners because of the things we do. We are sinners because of who we are born in Adam. And when Adam sinned, the entire human race was plunged into sin. We have 
been snared in this trap. And you know what's interesting about a trap? Is the more that you fight against being ensnared, the more you fight against the net, the more ensnared you become. This is the reality of man in his relationship to sin. It doesn't take long to acknowledge, although there's many theological uh, debates even in our day wanting to deny the existence of sin altogether, which I think is utter nonsense. Um, but, But what's interesting is that throughout the ages, as man has had to face his sin, God has called every one of us to repent and turn to His Son, to trust in Christ and in Christ alone for salvation. But what has man done? He's looked more time and time again to his own righteousness, to his own wisdom, to his own solutions. And the more and more he has looked to himself, the more and more humanity has become ensnared in sin. The sad reality is that the church is snared in many doctrines of men this morning. Not the least of which is the doctrine that says you can come to Christ in your own strength. That it's your decision. There is not one sweeping passage where an apostle lays out that argument. We are saved by grace and by grace alone. The imagery here of the net is, you know what? There's only one that can set you free from the net. And it is the one that's hunting you down. And is, is it not a joy to you and I today to know, friends... That the Lord is the one that has pursued our souls. That in the net that we were trapped in, He wasn't at a loss. We were entangled and fighting and trying to fix things on our own. And God came along and He set us free. Not because of us, but in spite of us. In verse 14, there's the picture of a yoke. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By His hand, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. Here, that the picture is that as we are under the heavy bondage of sin, some would say, well, ultimately, we've placed ourselves under the bondage of sin and God's just standing back. And here, one of the great lessons of Lamentations is, nope, God is sovereign even over that. And your sin is like reins in His hand. You know, as an ox is put under a yoke and the one driving the oxen is holding on to the reins, God holds sovereign sway over all of your rebellion. And in the life of the nation and in the life of the church and in each of our individual lives, He turns us every way He wills. Now that doesn't, that doesn't mean that we're not responsible for the sin. It just means that the sin isn't beyond the sovereignty of God. That He is moving us in a direction where He teaches us something about ourselves under the weight of that rebellion. And I think this makes us all the more grateful for the grace of Almighty God when we hear Jesus say these words in Matthew chapter 11, Come to Me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light." We are so 
foolish in our sin. We are so foolish to think that God, even as we are saved, that He'll just wink at our sin. But friend, remember, these are people who are chosen of God, who have been, I believe, set apart for the glory of God, saved people. And here we find them in rebellion towards God. And what they find out in the end is the consequence to the sin is God hasn't obfuscated His sovereignty at all, but our sin has fallen back upon us as a hard yoke. As we sin as believers, is it forgiven? Yes, in Christ we can rejoice in that. But never forget the spiritual reality that God chastens His people. And here is the reality that I find more and more and more as I study my Bible. The judgment of God in the life of so many people is often giving them over to the sin that they want. And He doesn't do it for their destruction, but that He might show Himself Glorious, And that finally is what we find a consequence in the suffering of sin in verse 15 is the destruction of so many lives. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. Boy, I would love to hear an an Armenian preach that verse. That we can in our own strength come to a holy God. Use that as your text, friend. Be honest of what the Word of God teaches. The Lord rejected all of my mighty men. Our strength is nothing to Him. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. What is put here in such gory imagery? We're not talking about wine. We're talking about blood. The people in the nation are laid waste. They have been physically crushed. And we see this all throughout Scripture. The bloody consequences of sin. The bloody consequence of leaving the clear teachings of the Word of God. And you know what happens when we see the bloody mess? Even in the sacrificial system, as God makes a way for His people in Leviticus back to Him, and we see it's bloody, it's messy, it's stinky, it it takes a lot of effort. You know what the modern mindset does to that? They look at it and they go, well, God is really petty to require all of this. But the modern mindset will look at all of the blood throughout the Old Testament and all of the judgment and even lamentations and they will not say God is petty. They will say man must be depraved if this is the consequence. Sin is a weighty reality. And we should never become comfortable with sinning against what God has so clearly spoken. This suffering then moves on in this passage And it brings sorrow. Look at verse 16. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears for a comforter that is far from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate for the enemy has prevailed. There are five times here in chapter 1 where there is an allusion to the absence of a comforter. In verse 2, in verse 9, in verse 16, in verse 17, and in verse 21. But here we focus on verse 16. For a comforter is far from Me. One to revive My Spirit. When we live our lives in rebellion to God and rebellion towards His Word, we will suffer. Matthew Henry again here I think helpfully notes God is the comforter. 
He used to be to her. He, can, he only can administer effectual comfort. It is His Word that speaks to them. It is His Spirit that speaks to them. His are strong consolations, able to revive the soul, to bring it back when it is gone. And we ourselves cannot fetch it again. But now He has departed from them in displeasure. It is no marvel that the souls of the saints faint away when God, who is the only comforter, can revive them, keeps His silence. And why does God keep His silence? Because the people of God have departed from His Word. I think it's interesting to note that in Ephesians chapter 4, we are told not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It is a warning. Don't grieve the Spirit of God. Why? Because He is holy. And if you grieve His Spirit, the end working, I think, of both verse 16 and Ephesians chapter 4, I believe it's verse 30, you put those together and you get this reality that if we grieve the Holy Spirit of Almighty God, ultimately it is we who will come to, to sorrow. God will chasten us. He will deal with us if we belong to Him according to our iniquity. So the suffering, the sorrow, then ultimately leads to shame. Look at verse 17. And I think this is one of the most pathetic, poetic expressions of what is happening in the church even today. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. What, what the, the picture is here, she's tried to make friends with the world. Jerusalem tried to live her life divided half in the doctrines of men and half in the doctrines of God and thinking that somehow God would just wink at her rebellion and instead of flourishing with the, making friends with the world, she has come under the judgment of God and now there is no one to comfort her. Do you know why the church is so enamored with the world today? Because we think we derive our power from the world. We think, I was told in that lobby nine years ago, Jay, be careful what you preach because people vote with their money. Do you know what I have to say to that? I don't preach because of the filthy lucre and money of men. You can take your money and die with it. I preach because of what God has spoken. And the world thinks they get power out of programs and out of theatrics and all of those things, but beloved, have we not learned from John where our power comes from? It comes from the indwelling work of the Spirit of Almighty God. And the Spirit has so departed the church, not because He's not willing to redeem. Beloved, I believe there's a possibility of another great awakening. But it will only happen as we yield to the words of God. It will not happen as we falter under the foolishness of men like Jacob Arminius. Like James Grandison Finney, who invented, by the way, the altar call where you can just come do something mechanical and be assured of salvation. And he was a Presbyterian, by the way. I love my Presbyterian friends. He was a bad Presbyterian. Presbyterian. 
But here we find the, the church with no one to comfort her. Why? Because she's given herself over to the world for so long. Beloved, if we don't live in the substantial doctrines of God, the world will mock us. And rightly so. First Peter, Peter tells us in chapter 1, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since that is, it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Or First Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 7, For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit. Sin always leads, and friends, I predominantly am talking this morning about intellectual sins. Sins of not hearing the words of God. It always leads to suffering, to sorrow, and ultimately to shame. And so then we ask this question, and I think I've already given it up, but where did all of this suffering and this sorrow and this shame start? We know that the Lord is the one who has brought the judgment, but why did He bring the judgment? Look at verse 18. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against His Word. But hear all you people and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have all gone into captivity. I have rebelled against His Word. That's the issue. The crux of Lamentations chapter 1 is that the people of God had not taken the Word of God seriously. And look at what flows out of this. In verse 18, we see that the, the, uh, Jeremiah telling us that the nation is in exile. In verse 19, there is betrayal. There is no friend to comfort. In, in verse 20, there is torment. And what do we gather from all of these things that, 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 that Jeremiah is teaching us this morning? That there is nothing absolutely nothing in this life worth leaving the Word of God for. Not your friends, not your family. I'm so thankful that you have encouraged my heart in the years that I've been away from my own family in this place. When we sing the lines, let goods and kindred go, you fuel my ministry more than if you could put a million dollars in the plate. That we don't hold on to the things dear to us here but we hold precious and dear to our souls the very words of Almighty God. If you find, beloved, a church where the Word of God is proclaimed unapologetically and the ordinances are administered rightly and not tepidly, and the church is disciplined according to the Word of God by the elders of God, Know that the, that the Lord is at work in that place and do not leave. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-13, through 13, the imploring of the Apostle Paul. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my Gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound, 
Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. And listen to this phrase. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. What does that mean? It means that if we are faithful, God is still faithful, but faithful to what? To Himself and to His Word. And He will crush us to bring us back to Himself. There are many people that depart Gospel-centered churches in rebellion, and what they don't see in their departure is that the judgment of God upon them is their departure itself. If you are faithless, God is faithful to His Word. How did all of this happen? The people of God had left the Word of God, but God did not. That's how this happened. And beloved, rejoice in this. He never will. He will never forsake one jot of... This is, this is, this is what's perplexing to me. Dion, this is for you, brother, because I know you're a grammarian and you love all of the words. Jesus told His church that not one jot or tittle would pass away from His Word. Do you know what that means? Be a theologian. Pay attention to theology. Because if not one semicolon will pass away, we need to understand all of it. It's not safe to depart the clear Word of God. Beloved, I hope that I'm stirring in your heart a joy that God is faithful to all that He has said. But I believe there is a wrong way to understand what is being said here. There's a way to come to this and say, well, what is happening to Jerusalem and to the people of God is ultimately happening because they did something wrong. We better do what God says. Yes, that's true. But that's very low in the economy of this passage. The first issue is not what the nation has done. The first issue is what the nation has believed. Their theology always drives their behavior, and it's true with you and I. What we believe, Brian, we will also live in. God had told Zedekiah through Jeremiah, don't go to battle. And was there sin in going to war? Yes! But the greater sin was that Zedekiah was putting on full display in front of all of the nations. The most shameful thing is not the judgment of God. It's that the king that has been put in place not by God but by another ruler ultimately led the people of God for his own devices away from God. You see, the issue is one of belief. Friends, here's, here's the first and probably the last athletic illustration I will give you. Uh, I was watching a football game as I was finishing this sermon last night because I would promised my sister I would watch it with her. And may, Did any of y'all watch uh, uh, the Jaguars and the Chargers? Raise your hand. Right. The first half of that game was trash. Like the, the Jaguars were getting pummeled. But then they came back in the second half and, and won it. And, and Trevor, I think his name is Trevor Lawrence, at the very end, as I'm finishing up this sermon, says, you know, what really happened here is, 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 is that we started believing in ourselves again. 
It's amazing what a people can do when they believe. And I thought, buddy, you're talking about you and a different direction, but that statement is true. It's amazing what the Word of God will do in the people of God when they do not trifle with it, but live under it. The church is weak today because we have stopped believing what our forefathers believed. Our actions ultimately are always just a consequence. Here's the reality. Liberal liberal theology came along in the 1920s-ish. I'm not going to give you a full history lesson. And J. Grisham Machen, which by the way, Table Talk in God's Providence, which I think will be, Sarah, has it been put out? It's here. There's a Table Talk in the back of the room on uh, liberalism and Christianity. Go grab it. It's fantastic. Uh, it's got a picture of a dude on the front. It's Jay Grisham Machen, who I'm, I'm going to talk to you about just for a second. He would, um, he would assert uh, in, the, in that whole liberal theology controversy, and it really was the drum that he beat, that the new liberal theology is a theology that says the Bible is all narrative, and it's just giving us an example, and we merely need to do better things. And Machen would come along and he would say, no, the Bible is a historical reality and it speaks doctrine. It informs what we believe, not only what we do. And here's what I think has happened in America inside of our churches. Liberals have generated their programs for whatever pet issue of their their bent. And they've said, do this, do this, do this. Be good people, which that battle's over. We're not. Um, But do, do, do is their refrain, right? And so what have we done in conservative circles? Sadly, I think we have fallen into the error of thinking like this. Well, if they're going to say do that, we're going to do this. And that's error just as much as that. Because what God is calling us to, beloved, is that we believe the substantial doctrines that have been handed down to us as men have contended for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And as we believe those things, then we will do rightly. We won't care whether it's conservative or liberal. We'll care whether or not it glorifies Almighty God. But the people of Israel had not heeded the Word of God. Doing again is not the aim. Believing right doctrinal truth is always at the heart of what the apostles and the prophets are speaking. That's why John said, if you all haven't heard this verse, let me share it with you. 1 John 5, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And those idols in the economy of 1 John are not totem poles in your front yard. It's, it's speaking in contradiction to the Gnostics who were leveling what? Vain idols of the mind against the people of God. And beloved, here's the thing. Why am I so passionate about these things? Because as a hick kid that came out of nowhere Missouri Libby tells me Jay when you talk about growing up it sounds like you walked out of the woods and I'm like "Uh (laughs) uh-huh I did and I showed up at Bible college and there's all these pastors kids and these godly people and I'm just pathetic in my own mind and still the chief among sinners And I start reading and seeing what's happened to the church of God in the past couple hundred years. And what has awakened in my soul is that people have lied to you. 
And that what God has said would come to pass has. That people will make merchandise of you. They'll tell you the things you want to hear. You'll get mad at Jay because he's preaching hard doctrine. And you'll go over to some other boy across town. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to tell you what you want to believe. Why? Because he wants you to set with him. Because he wants to glorify God. Why does what we believe matter so much? Because, beloved, the wrath of God not only comes against actions, the wrath of God will be poured out against people who believe that they're Christians but find out in the final analysis they haven't believed according to the Word of God. And that's the whole... Listen, the argument... (laughs) The argument about the author of Lamentations, that can't be Jeremiah. You know why they want to do that? Because they want to unhitch what is going on in Jeremiah to what's happening in Lamentations. Because the clear theology that has to flow into Lamentations is this is the rebellion of the people. And here, let's just humor me. Jeremiah chapter 20, if you've got your Bible. Starting in verse 7 of Jeremiah chapter 20. I'm going to take a drink of water and let you turn. Verse 7. O Lord... You have deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all the day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak of him any more in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. What is Jeremiah saying there? What is the issue of the day in Jerusalem? He's saying, God, You've given me a message. You've spoken clearly. But if I deliver Your message, I will be a laughingstock. I will be mocked. I will be rejected. But the other option is just as bad. If I don't speak... It's like a fire shut up in my bones. And I think it's so interesting that as Jeremiah says, if I depart your word, then there is this consuming fire. And what does verse 13 say about the entire nation? That the judgment of God is a consuming fire. That when we depart from the very words of God, when when the preacher decides to preach his own thing, to beat his own drum, to placate the people... He is heaping upon those people judgment. Because God will not be mocked. His Word will be heralded or we will be brought to lament. Friends, what is the real issue in in 1 John? The the real issue in 1 John, in, in chapter... I believe it's four, maybe two. Uh, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. What was the dividing line there? The dividing line wasn't merely what they were doing, it's what they were believing. That is what divides the real saints from those who depart. They went out because they did not believe the word of the apostles and prophets. They had manipulated it to their own end. Beloved, let me just give you a word of caution. 
One of the most dangerous things you can do is to memorize Bible verses out of their context so that they mean things that God has never actually spoken. And I think what's interesting in, in 1 John, it is chapter 2 there. Verse 19 speaks of the, 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 them going out from among us because they're not of us, because they didn't believe pure doctrine. And then what is the very next thing that John comforts the actual church with? But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. God is the one that has taught you what to believe through His Word. Beloved, let me just try to reconcile here quickly the, um, the entire second half of this first chapter. There really are two key verses. Verse 12 and verse 18. The first verse, 12, is it nothing to you All you who pass by. Is is my suffering, is what Jerusalem has gone through, is is it nothing to you? Do you think you're exempt from suffering and departing the Word of God? And the answer to that question comes in verse 18. The Lord is right, for I have rebelled against His Word. Verse 12 is a warning. It's a wake-up call. It's a church. Listen up. Don't depart the Word of God. And 18 is the only way of escape to acknowledge that we are not righteous, but that He is always righteous in all of His decrees, in all that He does, in all of His ways. He is righteous. Which is what Paul speaks in Romans chapter 3. Let God be true, though everyone else were a liar. As it is written, though you may be justified, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you have judged. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, beloved, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our Gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. What Jeremiah is saying here is heed the Word of God. Run to Him. Believe in His statutes. Trust in His Word. Or friend, you will be brought to destruction too. Beloved, the most callous moments in our lives are when we do not think about the suffering of the people of God as they've rebelled against God and we go the self-same way. Some people look at the theological battles of church history and they go, Ugh, just a bunch of brainy people having fights. No, it's not. It's men who had intellectual fiber wrestling for the glory of God. And we would do well to know our history. It's so funny to me how there are conservative people who look at Fox News and all of the other channels and they're aghast at the reality that people would tear down a statue of some historical figure in American history, but they are the same group that are totally fine with the history of the church being plundered just so they can feel right for an hour on Sunday morning. We dare not depart the Word of God. If you come to Lamentations chapter 1 and you go, whoa, praise God. The Word is coming to you the way that it should. And it's sounding an alarm bell 
Be careful. Don't leave the words of God. And so then the question has to be, what do we learn in light of the cross? We come here today as New Testament believers and we learn in light of verse 18 that the Lord is right. We depend not upon our own righteousness because everyone in this room has departed the Word of God in some form or fashion in their lives. And we can't bring ourselves beyond the net that has been laid by sin. We can't untangle ourselves from our own foolishness and folly. We must depend upon the righteous one to cut the cords and set us free. Friends, we need to understand if you're here today and you've never come to a saving knowledge of Christ, being a Christian isn't about being better morally or ethically. Being a Christian is a declaration, I am unrighteous, and the only righteousness I can depend upon is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that was won through His substitutionary death on the cross. It is only by His grace that I will stand right before the living God. He is holy and I am not. I depend upon a righteousness that the reformers would say is extranos. It is apart from us. So then we have to ask this question. What is God doing in all of this mess? What practically, if these are His people and they've come back to see His righteousness, what is it that He is doing? I want you to keep in mind the awful wrath of God throughout chapter 1. I want you to feel the weight of that as we consider. I want you to think about the day of judgment that is yet to come. God, my friends, will deal rightly with every human soul. He will judge and vindicate His own statutes. Which, by the way, is one of the nonsensical things about liberal theology is they're constantly inventing new statutes that there's nothing, no one's backing them up to judge them. Food for thought. Um, but I want to illustrate in this way. Trees and hornet's nests. You say, what? Well, when the leaves are on the trees, you can't see the hornet's nest. And I learned this very early on when I was still living in the woods, Libby. Um, you climb a tree and you don't know that a hornet's nest is up there, you'll find out soon enough. They will let you know. But far too often, the leaves are on the tree and they're veiled. You can't see them. Well, friends, in a similar way in our lives, when we are prospering, when we are content with our own belief, when we are content with what we have been taught, when we are content in our own righteousness, when we are content with the microcosm of just a little bit of church history over the past maybe hundred years and we're just comfortable with that, and there's really no trouble in our lives, there's nothing to lament, you know what we become? We become those people that are comfortable not seeing the hornet's nests that permeate all of our lives. So what is God doing when He brings difficulty? Everyone in here has experienced suffering. What's God doing in those moments? It's like the leaves coming off the tree in the wintertime. And all of a sudden you look up and you go, oh my word, there's five hornet's nests in that tree. I'm not going to climb that tree. And, and ultimately, there you deal with the problem. What God is doing in the nation of Israel is He is responding to their unbelief. And He's doing it brutally. You know why? 
because it is better for him to deal with it brutally here than to leave them in their unbelief for the judgment that is to come. What we learn is Lamentations chapter 1 in all of its goriness is child's play in comparison to the judgment that is coming to man apart from the grace of God. And when God allows difficult things in our lives, He's doing it not for our destruction, but for our deliverance. Proverbs chapter 14 Verse 12 says, there is a, right, a way that seems right to a man, but it, its end is the way to death. When God sends judgment, our leaves fall off and we see our own foolishness and our need for His righteousness alone. It is the foolish religious man that thinks through his own financial prowess, his own morals, his own righteousness, and his own decisions he could be brought back into right relationship with Almighty God. What God is doing in our most difficult moments, friends, is He's teaching us what He taught the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. May we be a people who pray like Augustine. Lord, burn me here. Saw me into pieces here. Pierce me here. Stone me here. Only spare me the judgment that is yet to come. That's what God is up to. One day we are going to stand before Him in glory. And when we count all of the sufferings, when we count all of the things we've lamented throughout this life, when we count up all of the friends that have had... Uh, our brother, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but Lewis Huckabee is one of uh, just a precious man to me. And he has said to me in tears, Jay, I've had to part with so many friends over the doctrines of grace. And I don't understand why. I don't know either, Lewis, other than this. On that final day, when we stand before the Lord, we are going to be thankful that He brought us to the truth of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We are going to rejoice in the reality that though friends may depart, God never departs from His Word. Friends, I have, and this is my honoriness for the day, I have told many people, don't pick on the music guy. Because they get bombarded by song requests all the time. It's just not fair. But I want you all to feel compelled to bombard Brian after this service that we should sing this song that I'm going to read to you. Because I used to read it in my office the first two or three years of ministry laboring alongside of you. We've never sung it together, but I would sit in my office and weep over the words. Because they're so true to the Christian experience. John Newton here writes, I ask the Lord that I might grow. And here are the seven verses. The reason music people don't want to sing it is it's like seven minutes long. It's glorious. Don't cut any verses out. <laughs> they're gonna. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. "'Twas He who taught me thus to pray, and He, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour 
at once He'd answer my request, and by His love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more of with His own hand He seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will Thou pursue Thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Why does God allow suffering in our lives and suffering like what is going on in the life of Israel here in Lamentations chapter 1? It is because He is righteous and we are not. Beloved, might we ask God to keep us in His Word and His Word in us no matter the cost. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence today so thankful for Your grace. Father, I'm so thankful for this people uh, who are hungry for Your Word, who have not departed, who love Your church, who have served so diligently Father, I pray that we would not settle for the status quo. That we wouldn't just marginally look to, to, to fill metrics that men look to, but that we would experience a great revival and a great joy in this church because of Your work, through Your Word, in the power of Your Spirit. Father, might we experience suffering to the degree that it would bring You glory. And Father, if there's one here today who has experienced loss and difficulty and yet they've gone through all of those things without You, might You do what only You can do and open their blinded eyes and show them the glories of Christ that they might come to You in repentant faith. Father, for those of us who are in Christ, might You add to our suffering in proportion to our departure from your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. If you would stand and we'll sing, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.